how has that shaped our biology and, and how does the environment shape the ways in which we interact with our world um, and change our physiology and our health as well? And this also becomes a, a really important point of trying to understand, you know, the ways in which our bodies have have kind of changed to deal with those environments. So a cold climate physiology is quite different than a hot climate physiology. And then now throw in a wrench of climate change. And what's that going to do with the underlying physiology that's being tossed into an environment that's changing so rapidly that we can't possibly biologically keep up. And so we have to technologically do so. Uh, and so trying to understand the biological underpinnings of how we have dealt with our different environmental challenges, I think is critically important for not only, like I said, understanding that past, but you know, paving a way forward for the future uh, in a world that's becoming increasingly more hostile and when in terms of climate and weather and increasingly more extreme. We had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kara Ockerbock. Dr. Ockerbock is the director of the Human Energetics Laboratory at Notre Dame University. Dr. Ockerbock spends a lot of her time at the intersection of human biology and anthropology. In our conversation, we speak about what we can learn from reindeer herders why brown adipose tissue is important, and the human metabolic response to the cold through time and culture. Dr. Ockerbock's enthusiasm radiates through the episode. You'll no doubt learn loads and hopefully have as much fun as I did. She's a wonderful human being. As an anonymous quote reads, human beings are the most adaptable beings on the planet. Our ability to learn, evolve, embrace change is our greatest asset. With that, here is our conversation with Dr. Kara Ockerbock. Well, Dr. Kara Ockerbock, am I saying your surname right as well? Yeah, you got it. Okay, fuck. Yeah, well done. First time. <laughs> well, thanks so much for doing this. We uh, had a lot of fun reading your homework you assigned us. <laughs> well, which, thank you uh, so much for having me on. No, no, pleasure. Our pleasure. I think the, uh, I mean, there's so many reasons why we wanted to have you on, but I think the really interesting angle for us was looking at temperature and humans mm. through the lens of someone who can come at it with a multidisciplinary approach like yourself, mm -hmm. right? You know, the, the anthropological uh, lens and also the sort of human biology lens mm -hmm. we thought would make for a pretty interesting, I mean, we, we'd learn a lot, which we're mm. sure of. Um, and we did in, in the very kind homework you sent us. So how did you, as a, as a place to start, how did you get into that sort of field, the anthropological, anthropology and the human biology side you want me to go way back to like undergraduate days yeah way back when. yeah okay way yeah, back way sure. back well, i mean if we, go, if we go way way back there you know there's always this slight journey uh the first job i wanted as a child was an archaeologist because i was totally in love with indiana jones and so that's what I wanted to be and, and what I wanted to do. And that lasted for a long time. I was obsessed with Egyptology. I got like, you know, little kids, hieroglyphics kits and things like that. And I would do little stamp messages. Uh, but as I got a little bit older, I realized, or maybe not realized, but I thought I wanted to go into medicine. You know, you my, my parents were very much like, she's good at science. She needs to be a doctor. And they, they kept kind of trying to push me along that route. And that's how I started an undergraduate uh, uh, career when I was at the University of Michigan there. And that's a bit of a sad story, actually. So so sorry, I'm going to bring the tone down on this one. Uh, but my junior year in college, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. 
And from diagnosis to when she passed away was only four months. It was this really fast thing. And uh, during that time, I was also taking genetics as, as an undergraduate student. And the number one most common example in any undergraduate genetics class is cancer. Uh, and so it was just like this constant bombardment with with everything, both in class and then at home. And the experience in and out of the hospitals and dealing with the medical field in, in that respect made me never want to go into medicine ever again. It was, you know, obviously a traumatic experience emotionally, but also I realized I didn't want to be dealing with death on, you know, a regular basis and having to watch people go through that. I am not strong enough uh, to, to do that every single day. And, uh, at the time I was also fulfilling, you know, some requirement for undergrad. And I, I took just an intro level anthropology course. Um, and that became like my safe haven during this really rough time in my life, uh, and absolutely fell in love with it. And so the semester after that, I ended up taking like 20 credits of classes. And for anyone in the U.S. knows, that's a heavy load. <laughs> that's, you're not usually supposed to take more than 15 or 16 in a semester. And I took 20 credits, like almost almost all except for one class, anthropology. And I just absolutely fell in love. I'm like, this is what I want to do. And so uh, I had wonderful mentors and undergraduate, uh, Milford Woolpuff and Laura McClatchy and Jeremy De Silva, to, to name a few. In case they listen to this, they should know the impact they had on me. Uh, and so then I went to graduate school uh, at WashU in St. Louis. But of all things, huh, I, I wrote in my cover letter for my application that I want to study orangutan biomechanics. <laughs> of course. Who doesn't, of right? Of course. Who doesn't? <laughs> and clearly the path leads to human physiology. And so it's just yeah. one of those absurd <laughs> things. Um, I mean, like when I go back, I had forgotten about that until Herman, my advisor, who you all were in touch with, um, on the day I defended, you know, the advisors always give a speech and he's like, yeah, your cover letter, you said you wanted to do orangutan biomechanics. Like, wow, that really panned out, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the natural progression of things, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's such a linear, linear progression. Uh, and so once I was in grad school, it was actually really interesting. Um, I, I just kind of started leaning more towards the physiology. It made more sense to me. It is just something that clicked more in my brain than the biomechanics aspect did. Um, and interestingly, Herman was also going down like a physiology route. Like we did not know the either was interested in these kinds of things. It took a little bit to, to, to realize that. Uh, but there was a particular paper I found really fascinating. It was by um, Hammond and Diamond, I think from like 1997. And they did this really cool experiment with mice where they wanted to see what the maximum number of calories the, the mice could expend, putting them in these extreme conditions. And so they would have these mice exposed to extreme cold for an extended period of time to see where they max out on calories. And then they made other run on a, the, the, the wheel, the running wheel until they exhausted. And then <laughs> the most awkward one that I like to imagine um, is they made female mice lactate. <laughs> <laughs> to the point that they reached exhaustion. And I just imagine like the poor student research assistants who had to like switch out mice pups to make sure this mom keeps lactating the whole time. Um, but of course, my mind also imagines somebody is milking the mouse, but that is yeah. not what happened. <laughs> Bad day to be a mouse. Exactly. Like, you know, lactating mice, tiny little udders. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, 
I thought that was awesome. I thought that was a really cool experiment. And I'm like, how can I do something obviously not similar or exact with humans? Uh, so what's kind of the maximal energy expenditure in humans? Uh, and I, I took a, a different way to it in that I was looking at folks who took part in the National Outdoor Leadership School. And these are people who take part in these wilderness courses that can last anywhere from a handful of days to a year where they're living in, you know, the Rocky Mountains, literally the backcountry of the Rocky Mountains for a year or traveling Peru for a year or something, you know, along those lines. And I was interested in, in ways that we could best predict how many calories they were expending in these extreme environments. And I was able to cover all of the different seasons and it was at high altitude. So I could compare, you know, the ways in which being extremely physically active in a high altitude environment was also impacted by temperature across the different seasons. And so that's kind of how it, that part came about. And through that, I learned I like winter. I like the cold way better than I like any other temperature outside or season. And once I finished my PhD, I decided I wanted to find a population I could work with in the cold. And that's what brought me to Finland. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of the work that you read up on your homework, as you like to say, yes. <laughs> for this podcast. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm with you on the, I'm with you on the cold. I'm much more of a, I used to live in Singapore and just every day was, I was constantly a little bit pissed off. It was a bit too hot. So right? I'm with you. I love the cold. The colder, the better. This is great. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not sweating or doing that. First, also very, very, very sorry to hear about your uh, your mother's story with um, thank you your undergraduate. That's uh, yeah, no, it's a rough place for everyone, but lovely. A silver lining. You know, you found a silver lining your your, uh, your path. Right. I found my path, and it's also helped me as a professor. You know, helping students who also experience similar tragedies and. I have now had multiple students lose parents as, mm. you know, while they're undergrads too. And so there is a silver lining to the tragedy for sure. Right. Well, look, I'm sure the students definitely appreciate that. I mean, I said I wouldn't, but I'm going to do it. I can't mm. help myself as a tangent. Did, there is a crossover. I mean, I'd love to get your initial thoughts of sort of the metabolic theory of cancer. I don't know if that's something you've looked into with, it's kind of, I guess, related to sort of brown fat exposure, maybe cold exposure, just if it's of interest. So Hold on. Refresh me on the metabolic theory of cancer, because I feel like um, I, I, I kind of remember it, but I don't want to say I do and mess it all up. No, no. It, essentially, I mean, again, this is complete cliff notes from a scientific layman, mm -hmm. um, but essentially the theory of, I guess they call it DNA fragmentation, maybe, mm -hmm. uh, doesn't necessarily hold up all the time, especially when looking really large animals like uh, massive whales and their mm -hmm. rates of cancer. Surely more cells means multiple chances, yeah. more chance of cancer. And actually looking at it as have we been foundationally looking in the wrong place? And actually it's a metabolic disorder. So mm -hmm. for example, why do rates of cancer increase when uh, type 2 diabetes rates increase and yeah. when people are obese? And is that a different place to look? Wondering if there was any crossover in your research with that book. At this point, definitely not. Um, I, I, I mean, there are some really interesting things. You bring up whales, uh, but we're just going off on a cancer tangent now. Sorry. We're, we're yeah, no, doing this. It's actually we're my going fault. In. Not, no, my, we're my going fault. in. Yeah. Uh, but like an interesting thing, like that's why I don't think there's ever going to be one cause for cancer. And I, I think you will find metabolic routes, but I also will think that you will find, you know, the DNA routes. So for example, large body animals, elephants have crazy low rates of cancer, but they also have something like what is it, 20 copies of the P52 gene? And the P52 gene is specifically one that uh, 
codes for a thing that seeks out damaged DNA and damaged cells and kills them. And we only have two copies of that gene, whereas elephants have, you know, 20 times that. Uh, and so, yeah, like I said, like there are a lot of different routes going on and we, we just got the short end of the stick when it came to at least P52 genes. But I am, I would be not at all surprised if there is some metabolic component to some cancers. Well, well, I mean, I'm pleased to ask because that, that was interesting nonetheless. Guil I'm guilty of a tangent, Kara, so you, you, you got to stop me. You um, should see me teach. Like, I come in with a plan and it gets tossed out the window in the first <laughs> 10 minutes. So no worries. <laughs> that sounds like a great class. Okay, so, so that's your sort of your origin story. Wonderful. Yeah. Love it. How did that lead to you studying reindeer herders? It was, oh, this is the bad pun of the day. Uh, I, so I knew I wanted to work with a cold climate population and, uh, it's actually really tough to work, uh, in Canada among cold climate cop populations and Alaska as well. And a lot of it has to do with the, the, the colonial hangover of it. Like these people have been abused and pushed out of their way of life. And so there's not a lot of trust rightfully so for researchers. Uh, but also the sad part is the traditional way of life is very much gone. So they, they no longer have the traditional levels of activity that they used to. And so I was curious to try to find a population that was still maintaining some level of high activity levels, but in a cold climate. And so that took me towards the Sami, who are the indigenous reindeer herders of uh, Fino Scandinavia and Russia. And so here's the pun. I literally cold emailed people in Norway, Sweden, and Finland. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Uh, and Norway was like, yeah, kind of interesting, but it fizzled out. They never really grasped onto it. Sweden shut the door immediately, said everything I wanted to do was unethical. No idea why. Uh, and Finland's like, interesting. Tell me more. And so Finland was the one that was most interested in this. And I, I reached out to colleagues, uh, Mina Turunen and Paivi Sopala at the University of Lapland and the Arctic Center. And um, took my first trip out there to meet with them and try to plan and talk way, you know, through the project of what this might look like and how it might work. And it took, oh goodness, like three or four back and forth trips to Finland before we finally were able to collect a single point of data. Um, and yeah, the rest is history there. So it was luck, a lot of luck, uh, being willing to put yourself out there and see who's willing to accept. Love that. Love that. Well, you know, you knocked on three doors and one, one open, right? So mm -hmm. but why is it important to look at uh, people working in cold environments? So it's something that hasn't been looked at so much, at least from my point of view. There's actually a ton of um, occupational work, uh, studies done about occupational hazards for logging companies, miners, things like that, who are often exposed to the cold. And this is really common in, in, in Finland, actually. Uh, but no one's actually looked at some of the more traditional levels. We have lots of, of data, lots being relative to cold climates. Let's keep that in mind of, you know, temperate climate populations and especially tropical populations who still maintain some level of hunting and gathering or foraging or horticulture or things like that. Cold climate populations in this realm are very woefully underrepresented and we don't have a lot of people to work with or a lot of areas to work with. Um, and so that's kind of why it was a, a need that hasn't been done. And it's also an area that can help us better understand part of our evolutionary past uh, in, you know, glacial Europe in, in particular. We have all these ideas about Neanderthals and how they may have survived their cold glacial climates. Not all Neanderthals were in cold climates, but a lot were. 
Uh, and, you know, how can we really try to understand the ways in which they either physiologically or behaviorally mitigated the cold unless we have some understanding of what we're capable of right now? Mm. I mean, there's this nice line which nature doesn't make mistakes, right? So talking about the sort of the differences in humans from the who are exposed to the cold in their mm -hmm. environment and humans who, I guess, are very comfortable from a temperature perspective in, I don't know, whether it be central heating or um, yeah. whatever it is. What can we learn from the difference? I mean, I guess it speaks to the, the evolutionary mechanisms, mechanisms behind, like, why we have brown fat yeah. as such, right? So Yeah. Yeah, I'd I love... mean, that's exactly, I mean, you got it. you hit the nail on the head with that, is, like, trying to understand these differences of exactly why we see the variation we see across humans. I mean, look across within any species, and you see an incredible amount of variation, uh, but you don't get a lot of mammals like us who are spread throughout the globe in, in a wide variety of environments. You get some, of course, but not as many as, as not like us. And so how is that shaped, our biology? And, and how does the environment shape the ways in which we interact with our world um, and change our physiology and our health as well? And this also becomes a, a really important point of trying to understand, you know, the ways in which our bodies have have kind of changed to deal with those environments. So a cold climate physiology is quite different than a hot climate physiology. And then now throw in a wrench of climate change. And what's that going to do with the underlying physiology that's being tossed into an environment that's changing so rapidly that we can't possibly biologically keep up. And so we have to technologically do so. Uh, and so trying to understand the biological underpinnings of how we have dealt with our different environmental challenges, I think is critically important for not only, like I said, understanding that past, but you know, paving a way forward for the future uh, in a world that's becoming increasingly more hostile in, in terms of climate and weather and, and increasingly more extreme. Mm. Okay, so so a good place to start would be, I think, back to the reindeer herders. Mm. What what are the takeaways from studying them um, from a human physiology point of view? Yeah, oh, the reindeer herders—they post such awesome stuff every now. Like every time I go back and look at the data, there are times I just throw my arms up. What am I seeing with this data? Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's wild stuff sometimes. Uh, so one, they absolutely do have brown fat, and so for for listeners who are not familiar with brown adipose tissue. We will call it fat uh, or brown fat. Uh, this is a kind of fat that burns only to keep you warm. Uh, and it's only been, quote unquote, rediscovered among adult humans in the past about 20, 25 years. So it's kind of a recent rediscovery. We've known about it in hibernating animals for a very long time. And we've known about it in human babies, uh, like just recently born. They've got a cape of brown fat down their front and a cape down the back that kind of goes over where the kidneys are. Uh, because newborns can't thermoregulate they can't maintain their body temperature all that well they can't shiver um, and of course they can't ask to have a coat or whatever put on or turn up the heat uh, and so brown fat helps keep babies warm um, for the first couple of months before they burn through it and then it was thought that once babies burn through it we adults just never got it back uh, and to return to cancer because that's what we're going to do today is return yeah. to cancer as much as possible um, Brown fat was kind of rediscovered because of a study on cancer. Uh, so they were taking these patients and they were injecting them with a, a labeled glucose so that when they put them in a PET scan, they could see where the tumor was because the tumors loved that glucose. And so the glucose would go where the tumor was and it would light up in the PET scan. Uh, and for anyone who's listening to this and has had any sort of medical scan, you know those rooms are not warm. Those rooms are kept cold on purpose to keep any sort of bacterial growth down. And so what they didn't realize was is they were mildly cold stressing their participants in this study. And by mildly cold stressing them, the brown fat was activated. And brown fat, at least among some people, 
uh, loves glucose, loves glucose. And so all this labeled glucose was going to where brown fat is in adults, which is just above the shoulders called the supraclavicular area. And that was lighting up on the PET scan. And you don't get symmetrical tumors. <laughs> like you don't get one on either side on your shoulder. And so after, you know, a little bit more research, they realized, oh crap, this is brown fat. This is really cool. And we didn't think this was happening in adults. And so that's where everything exploded. So we have now taken a detour again away from the reindeer herders. So the reindeer herders have brown fat. <clears throat> and when you are mildly cold stress and you activate your brown fat, there's actually an increase in metabolic rate associated with it. Uh, but that also seems highly variable from, you know, person to person and from group of people to group of people. And so the herders had a, a almost 9% increase in their metabolic rate in response to the, the mild cold exposure. To give you an idea, when I say mild cold exposure, it's only like 60 degrees uh, that we're exposing them to, but they're not allowed like coats or anything to, to keep warm. And the unusual thing is that the herders, at least, their brown fat actually seems to like to burn fat more than glucose, the way we've seen in other studies. Oh. And Yeah. And so we're seeing interesting variation here. And to, to give you an idea, a population in Siberia, they seem to like glucose more than fat. And then a population in Samoa, which is a tropical climate has brown fat, by the way, and their brown fat seems to use both glucose and fat. And so we're seeing a lot of variation in not only the temperatures at which brown fat will start to turn on, but also the metabolic response and what fuel it's using to actually keep you warm. So that's lesson one. Perfect. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 so many different places to jump off of. Just quickly, with the, with the reindeer herders, mm -hmm. if they're, did you say their brown fat is using fat for energy or their whole metabolic system is essentially in the state of ketosis or um so it seems so I'll, I'll i'll give you the setup of how we do the measurements so um when they come in we do all sorts of like physical measurements height weight we'll draw some blood things like that your standard fare uh, and then we put them into my quote unquote cold suits. And these are like sweatsuits that are lined with tubes that you connect to a pump that is then connected to a reservoir of cold water. Uh, so that's how we will eventually cold stress them. Uh, but the first thing they do is they lay down and they do nothing for half an hour. I haven't put any cold water in the suit or anything. They are just at room temperature at rest. After that half hour, we then measure the resting metabolic rate at room temperature. Uh, and that lasts about a half an hour, too. So we can see what fuel they're burning as well during room temperature. And typically, they're burning closer to carbohydrates. They're, they're more burning the carbohydrates at rest. There's a bit of mixed fuel usage, some fat as well, but they burn more carbs at rest at room temperature. Once that 30 minutes is up, I then plug the suit into the cold water pump, and it floods the suit, and the cold exposure begins. And then we continue the, the measurement of the metabolic rate, as well as what fuel they're utilizing. And then all of a sudden, the body shifts towards more fatty acids. Um, it's, it's pretty quick. So we, it's measured something called the respiratory quotient, or RQ. And it's looking at the ratio of carbon dioxide cons, uh, produced to oxygen consumed. And that ratio gives you whether you're burning carbs, fats, or protein. And so, yeah, there's a shift once they start getting cold. Wow. That's, yeah. that's quite, that's massive, isn't it? Surely in a, in a world where most people are pretty insulin resistant. Um, that uh, finding can prove 
quite important. And, and both ways. I mean, even if it's using glucose, it means it's clearing glucose from the blood uh, or it's clearing, you know, triglycerides from the blood. It, like either way, it's clearing stuff from the blood that a lot of people have, you know, said are dangerous and, and can be harmful to the body. Uh, and so that's why people are look, are very interested in brown adipose tissue as a way to address at least one tool in the toolkit of dealing with the obesity epidemic as well as type 2 diabetes. Wow. Okay. So for, um, for the listener at home, so the, and me actually, um, and everyone else, the, uh, for everyone, for the world, <laughs> everyone um, of your reindeer herd has had a lot of brown fat in their body how does that compare with someone who i guess lives in a very uh you know your london's or your you know urban environments i guess um cities across the west so we we have data for that ben which is great because uh my my graduate student who's now a postdoc um so she did a study in albany new york which is a a pretty good you know temperate is i mean yeah, it gets cold in the winter, I won't lie. Uh, but it, it can be quite hot in the summer. And she looked at summer brown adipose tissue and winter brown adipose tissue among the same people. So we could actually do a seasonal comparison between the two. Um, and then her main dissertation work was actually in Samoa, again, which is a tropical population. And we've seen brown fat all over. Like, we're seeing it everywhere. Uh, but we're seeing variation in how much it increases the metabolic rate, uh, how much warmer it actually keeps you. And then, of course, that fuel use of whether it's fats or carbohydrates or a mix. We're seeing variation across it, but we're finding it everywhere. And so there's the, a possibility that this is a deeply ancient human trait uh, that we've had in our evolutionary past for quite some time. Wow. The, uh, I guess my next question is sort of on that variation. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is it, what do you think? Is it genetic or do you think it's, um, I guess through your environment or down to environmental circumstances? And then, I mean, you said mentioned Samoa is tropical. Mm-hmm. How come they have brown of, uh, sort of brown fat, much like the people who are exposed to coal? Yeah. So hold on. Now I've already forgotten your first question. Oh, good. We'll go to the second one first. Uh. Okay. So why in the world are we finding it elsewhere uh, in in a tropical population? So uh, Samoa is currently the only tropical hot climate population that we have brown fat data for. So we we can't be 100% sure at this point that we're going to find it across all hot climate populations. But let's assume for a moment we do. Let's just build up that story that we do. That it could, again, like I said, be, oh, genetic. You were talking about genetics. That it could be this you know, very ancient trait that we have that would have a genetic basis. And it likely does, given that there is a particular protein that you need, it's called UCP1, and it decouples the, sorry everybody at home, the electron transport chain in the mitochondria, which means instead of producing energy in the form of ATP, it releases hydrogen atoms. And that's what actually is happening. The hydrogen atoms are the heat that it's releasing. So instead of producing energy to use for work, you're, you're releasing heat to keep yourself warm. Uh, That likely has a genetic basis for sure. Uh, But how active it is and how often it's transcribed and needed, that's likely very driven by the environment and how much it's needed. But why? Why in the world would we have this? Uh, So for folks at home who don't know about human evolutionary past, we evolved in Africa, like the first bipeds, all of that in Africa, which is a hot climate. And our early evolutionary climates and, you know, the, the Pliocene were warm and were dry. However, much like you'll see in desert environments today, there is a sharp decrease in temperature at night. 
like temperatures get very low at night, quite cold. And so it's entirely possible that brown adipose tissue could be really important for keeping individuals warm in the cold nights, which is not super necessary during the day, but it could have helped without any advanced technology of fire use or clothing or things like that. Brown fat could have really helped keep our ancestors warm during the cold nights. And so that might be this deeply ancient origin, which likely has a genetic component that people are kind of going through and working out basically as we speak, but we cannot discount the environment whatsoever. Um, we, we do see variation in, in these populations across environments as well. So that's, you know, hypothesis one, that everyone is going to have brown fat because it's deeply ancient. When we think about Samoans, so say we start looking at other populations in, in hot climates and they don't have brown fat or very, very minimal brown fat, why Samoa? So the hypothesis there is if it only ends up being in a Samoan tropical population is that in order to reach the various Polynesian islands, you had to endure very long overseas journeys uh, and you would have encountered cold weather on the open ocean as well as being wet on the ocean as well as the winds. And so it's possible the folks that were best able to survive those conditions were the ones that had brown fat to keep them warm. And it's also thought potentially that the ones best able to survive those conditions were those with larger bodies, uh, which is why we do see larger body shapes and sizes in Polynesian populations, uh, because you're basically decreasing your body surface area. Uh, if you increase weight uh, and kind of be shorter and squatter, you have less surface area to lose heat to the environment. And so this follows the, the Bergman's and Allen's rules that uh, have been around since the 1800s, talking about body shape and size based on latitude and cold exposure. Wow, that's fascinating. I really, uh, um, I, I'm really fascinated in mitochondria. And mm. um, I used to, I've played rugby in Sydney. Um, for What position? I was fullback or wing. Ah, so I was either a prop or a lock, depending on who the other prop was. So uh, brilliant. it's always That's good to find wise. a fellow rugger. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Very good. Well, I mean, in Sydney, we had, um, there's a lot of people from Polynesia, so, you know, Samoa and the sort of the tropical islands over there. And they are genetic, like freaks in the best kind of way. I mean, they are just blessed for the game. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always wondered about like their mitochondrial efficiency, because mm. they just seem so explosive. Yeah. And that ATP, um, I guess, NG system is so apt. And maybe, I don't know. Oh, actually, I guess. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. Is I there mean, a link between brown fat, uh, brown fat levels and mitochondrial function? Um, we don't know. Ah. I, I, I don't know. I can't give you an answer at, that, at this point. I mean, we are still trying to figure out a lot of the basic biology behind brown fat. And when we start seeing all this variation, as, as I'm now telling you about, it's hard to pin down something solidly. Uh, but as for actual like efficiency and mitochondrial efficiency, no idea. Uh, we do know that there seem to be hormonal effects for sure. Uh, we are seeing that estrogen might actually boost brown fat uh, uh, activity, which is kind of cool but as for when i think about rugby i find rugby and hockey actually very similar in some ways because it is both a like short burst sport but also an endurance sport like you you have to kind of be both in those different sports because you have those short bursts of speed but you're also playing how long with very few breaks um and so it is this interesting combination of aerobic and anaerobic metabolism that that keeps ruggers going and hockey players going uh 
I feel like there are not enough studies done on rugby players. I would totally be up for that if anyone out there <laughs> wants Definitely. to contact me. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, there's an interesting study with rugby players in cold exposure where they mm. pre-cool them in a mm-hmm. cryotherapy chamber before and actually measure their, um, I guess, salivatory or the saliva testosterone levels, which is mm, mm-hmm. the best measurement. And they, it, the, the, the conclusion of the study was those who had cold exposure before Mm-hmm. And then play rugby. Their testosterone levels were increased, and the inverse was the re- was the reverse. Kind of interesting. I mean, I'll send you the study after. Get your, get your yeah. So, it. question. Sorry, now I'm going to ask you about this. Were oh, these gosh, rugby gosh. players were they playing in a warmer climate, or were they playing it, in a colder climate? It was Italy in the winter, um, and they were training. That depends on where you are in Italy of how cold or warm that is. <laughs> it does. It does. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and guess the north because the north. Uh, okay, so then it was cold. Because, I mean, yeah. people are, are, are starting to play, because of climate change, they're starting to play with the idea of uh, pre-cooling athletes before playing in a hot climate. Um, and that will, like, decrease the, the, the heat gain during, you know, the competition. So that's why I was wondering about that, because I've been looking at this, like, pre-cooling sort of idea. Uh, but, yeah. Anyway. Well, well on yeah. pre-cooling, um, so Eloise and I are doing a little experiment hmm. where we have a cold plunge. And we love mm. our cold plunge. It's it's the best, you know. Where do you do it? We've just got a little balcony out here, and we have the cold plunge, and we just oh, jump in in the mornings. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. It's great, but we're doing an experiment where we both got some a blood, blood work done before. Mm-hmm. And when I say experiment, I mean, you, you can pick holes in all of this, but a little self-experiment um, where we got blood work done beginning of January, mm-hmm. and we have a ice bath, and then I'll go to the gym straight away after. So mm-hmm. I pre-cool before my gym. Yeah, and then at the end of six weeks, I'm going to get it tested again. Mm. Eloise isn't doing exercise after, and um, we're seeing if this pre-cooling thing has an effect on the endocrine system in any way, from a male perspective and then a female perspective. So oh, this is what we like to do. The other variable of physical activity, damn it, people, one variable. <laughs> 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 but I'd be very curious to see what you all find out. That's really interesting. Yeah, for sure, we will. I mean, actually, that goes back to a question I had around when we were talking about sort of the cultural differences of brown yeah. exposure. Uh, what about um, in the sexes, male and female? Um, so, yeah, we don't have, among the reindeer herders, I can't talk with a huge amount of confidence because we have fewer females than we do males, but I can tell you a few things. Um, and, and from other studies as well, it actually seems like females might have more active brown fat than males do. And this might be just a complete side effect of having more estrogen because we do seem, uh, there does seem to be an impact of estrogen on brown fat in a positive direction. So that's one thing we see. Another thing that we see, and I have seen this in my, my reindeer herder population, and we've also seen this in the, um, the Russian population in Siberia, the Saka, where so far only in males... They will activate brown fat and we'll see it light up using the thermal images at their shoulders. So we see it there and their temperature does increase, but their metabolic rate drops in response to it, which is really interesting. And so far, we've only seen that response in males in these two populations. And why? I don't know at this point. Uh, one of the many open questions in, in brown fat research. And with the females, it rises. Yes. And most of the males, it rises too. So far, it's only between like 15 and 20% of males. And I say only, but that's still a fair percentage of, of the ones tested both in Finland and in Russia have this, this metabolic drop. Um, oh my, that's so, yeah. 
I mean, I, I want to ask why, but I guess we don't know. Right? I mean, you just there, said, I mean, there are some thoughts. Uh, one is called the Q10 effect or Q10 phenomenon, where you just end up like all the enzymes in your body are kind of slowing down because of the colder temperature. And so you'd see a metabolic rate drop from that. Another one is that perhaps these individuals are increasing their vasoconstriction. So they're, they're better at tightening up their blood vessels so they don't lose as much heat. Um, and we're actually going to try to capture that, this, this coming data collection, um, using, I'm going to bring out both thermal imaging cameras, and I'm going to have one just pointed at the hands at all times to see if we can actually, because you can do a video of it rather than just a picture, to see if we can see any sort of pulsing of temperature in, in the hands. And we also have little... Um, thermocouples that you can put on the hands too, to, to monitor how temperature is changing to see if there is an increase in vasoconstriction. And if those are more vasoconstricting, if they're the ones who also have the lower metabolic rate, but we're working on it. We just don't have an answer yet. I can't remember where I read this, but apparently if you're cold adapted and I'm not quite sure on a definition of that, so please don't push me for one. That's okay. um, but apparently <laughs> if, if, if you're, uh, you regularly expose yourself to cold exposure, that uh, it's been noticed in certain people that you can have a vasodilation in your mm -hmm. hands. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's called the, the hunter's response or the hunting response. Yes, please yeah. tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, so it's a cycling of vasoconstriction and vasodilation. Uh, because if you vasodilate too much, so if you're expanding those blood vessels too much, you're going to lose a lot of heat and dump it to the environment. And so those who have this response go through a cycle of they'll vasoconstrict to, to maintain their body heat. And then so they're not, choking off the you know the tissues in your fingers and your toes then they'll cycle through a vasodilation for a little bit and then recycle back to vasoconstriction so it does this back and forth back and forth to one maintain heat but also keep all the tissue alive so you're not vasoconstricting to the point of damaging um the tissue with uh restricting nourishment and oxygen flow so i imagine the hunting response if you were hunting in a cold environment it's like your i guess evolutionary mechanism to enable that I mean, I'm not going to relate it back theory. to hunting. It's being called the hunting response. Everyone puts way too much emphasis on hunting as it is. Uh, but that's what it's called. We see this in people who do not hunt. <laughs> it has nothing oh, I to do with hunt. Yes. I, I think it is potentially an evolutionary response to just maintain heat, uh, but also maintain your mobility, whether that is, you know, getting food, hunting food, preparing tools, any of the number of activities where you need manual dexterity. Mm. I guess, I mean, anyone who's, been in cold water or has been cold has always felt their fingers and extremities mm -hmm. getting cold right and i guess Absolutely. what we're talking about is the opposite where blood actually shunts mm -hmm. to your extremities so absolutely yeah bizarre there's so much about this um uh so much we can learn from humans at the, these extremes what going back to the um the metabolic uh benefits of perhaps cold exposure so yeah. as, we, as you said um you know, blood sugar levels can drop. Um, mm -hmm. Is that one of the important reasons why we need to study people in cold? There's there's a few reasons. Uh, so I've already given you lesson one with the reindeer herders, which is the brown adipose tissue metabolic rate goes up and their brown fat likes fat. We got that part and that's really cool. Um, a, a weird thing that, that popped up and I, I don't have an answer for and, and maybe, you know, in a year I'll have a better idea females uh and particularly female reindeer herders rather than female office workers who are not reindeer herders in finland have higher metabolic rates than males and that's really 
bizarre. That has never been seen before. Um, and I've been able to confirm it with more data that we got last year, uh, literally a year ago. Um, and typically, so your basal metabolic rate for folks at home is your cost of maintenance. If you were to lay on the floor and do nothing, it is the metabolic rate you would need to just maintain life. You're not eating, you're not moving, you're not doing anything. That's it. Uh, and it scales very well with body mass and in particular muscle mass. So those with more body mass and more muscle mass tend to have higher metabolic rates than those with less body mass and muscle mass. Males on average are larger than females. That's pretty standard. And so males on average have higher metabolic rates than females. Not true with the female reindeer herders. They have higher metabolic rates than males, both absolutely. And when you control for differences in body size, it's absolutely wild. Um, I have a, a hypothesis that it might deal with thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone sets your body's thermostat. It basically sets your basal metabolic rate. Uh, but it's also critically important for a successful pregnancy. Uh, that if your thyroid hormone levels don't rise pretty steeply in the first eight to 10 weeks of pregnancy, it will almost always result in a miscarriage. Uh, and it's entirely possible that in a cold climate population, the baseline thyroid hormone level needed for a successful pregnancy is higher than say a temperate population. They can have a lower baseline thyroid hormone level for a successful pregnancy. And so if uh, females drop their thyroid hormones, which we could see in a response to a lowered metabolic rate would be an indication of lower thyroid hormone levels potentially, um, they might have an increased risk of miscarriage or less successful pregnancies. So this also relates back to climate change and also just, you know, awesome industrial technology and things like that. Finland is not as cold as it used to be. Uh, climate change has increased the temperature dramatically in Finland. And then, of course, you have indoor heating. You have vehicles that are heated, hand warmers, all of these things. But cold stress is no longer as cold stressy in Finland as it used to be. And so perhaps we're seeing males respond to this faster because there isn't any sort of reproductive pressure on them to maintain their metabolic rate the way there would be for females with metabolic rate and thyroid hormone. Uh, and so we see these variable metabolic rates when we typically see higher metabolic rates in cold climates. Males in the male reindeer herders are kind of all over the place, whereas females are elevated, consistently elevated. And this might relate to, again, thyroid hormone and reproduction. And so that's kind of cool, um, but also kind of concerning. Like, is this something that we need to worry about with climate change? Like at some point, is the body going to respond and lower thyroid hormone, lower the metabolic rate? And what will that do with, you know, potential reproductive success? Will that also alter it or will it be fine? No idea. So that's one cool thing that we need to think about that's, well, cool, but kind of scary uh, thing that to think about from the reindeer herders. Definitely. But I mean, in a world of, uh, I guess, uh, conceiving difficulties, I think yeah. would be the, the term, which is increasing massively on the male and female side, um, you know, any, uh, I guess, thing that can help that happen mm. is, is a wonderful thing to explore. Yeah. Am I right in saying uh, brown fat actually makes thyroid hormone? It makes what? Sorry, Am I right in saying brown fat makes thyroid hormone? Or it does not. It does not. No, that's It does incorrect. not produce it. No. Correct. Yeah. Where does the thyroid hormone come from? The thyroid. The thyroid. Brilliant. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's good. That's it's like good. the asshole comment, like, well, the thyroid, Ben, clearly. Yeah, it does. No, no, it's just good. I just look, there's no stupid questions on this podcast. No, there apart isn't. Apart from that one. Um, <laughs> no, um, the only reason yeah. I ask is I... I I read something incorrect uh, in my prep for this. I read that most of the thyroid hormone is made 
through brown fat, which clearly was not the case. I don't so, think that is true. I mean, no. I don't think it has an endocrine ability. Like maybe it does. And this is a new study that I am unaware of. But if you found that, like wherever you read that, send that to me. <laughs> I will. That's news I mean, to me. It, it might be just a complete mistake. It, it, but it also could be switched because we, we do believe it responds to thyroid hormone. Oh, I see. So it, that might be where like, yeah, we might just be switching directions in which way it goes, but that's all right. Perhaps. Um, probably not. It's probably my bad. Most likely. Um, the uh, so talking about the sort of potential reproductive benefits of, yeah. I guess, people being cold exposed or having better brown fat in their body. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. Is there an argument for that? We've all got a bit too temperature comfortable. Oh, I absolutely believe that's true. <laughs> I mean, that's personal. Um, like you know, we we live in a very cushy world, and we have definitely insulated ourselves. There's another pun: insulated ourselves yeah. <laughs> uh, from the cold. Uh, it, it, you know, in many ways, with sweaters, coats, and, and indoor heating, and all of that. Uh, and yeah, we, we're not quite sure what that's doing to us in the end. We we have actually seen a decrease in average body temperature um, over time. So, like that, ninety eight point six is really not the average. It's probably you know closer to to lower 98 and even in the upper 97s sorry that's fahrenheit oh oh sorry uh celsius i'm, I have to look it up. I'm trying to convert i know i'm like head. oh crap i need to like, quickly google this uh, <laughs> I mean, you, said 60, you said 60 degrees fahrenheit earlier and i was trying to work in my head the reindeer herders what that was all right so 97 degrees fahrenheit is 36.1 degrees celsius and then 98 is 36.6 so you know we're looking at like 36 to 36.6 degrees celsius uh and then i'll do the 64 oh it's like 15 degrees celsius for the cold exposure by the way that's that's, that's a warm day in england i mean yeah we're, no, no, we're... no exactly like we try to get it between 12 and 15 degrees celsius we do actually measure it in celsius <laughs> <laughs> but whenever i do podcasts i'm so used to putting it in fahrenheit so i'm just like I yeah, lost my mind for a moment. <laughs> I completely yeah. lost my mind. Um, but yeah, and so, you know, this is why people say it's not a bad idea to sleep with the window open or sleep naked or, you know, only one sheet or one blanket or whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, this is an idea of one to, to not only make sure your body is used to different environmental temperatures, but potentially have a bit of a metabolic bump. I don't think it's going to, you know, cure all ills, but I, it will not have a negative effect on you um, mm. unless you live somewhere where pollution's entering into your window or something like that. Uh, but yeah, no, we've gotten very cushy with our, our environmental controlled buildings for sure. So how has that changed how, I guess, your own personal practices as someone who's so immersed in the literature and conducting these studies? I mean, honestly, it doesn't. Because I am one who tends to be cold. Like, I keep the house at, oh, let's say 14 degrees Celsius, like maybe even 13 degrees Celsius. I'm somebody who keeps it cold in the house. Um, and so that's just more, it's more reinforced my natural inclinations. Uh, my husband is the one who has had to adjust more because <laughs> <laughs> he tends to run cold where I run hot. So I like things cooler. Um, so personally, it, it hasn't changed much of what I have done uh, because that's where I went anyway. <laughs> sure. More, more of the same. More yeah, the same. exactly. It's just made me feel, I don't know, more prideful. Yes. <laughs> I got a chip <laughs> on my shoulder about it now. <laughs> a, little, a little bit smug. Yeah. Yeah. Smug. That's a good word for it. Yeah, we've got a lot of that in England. Don't worry. Um, not about much, to be honest, just English <laughs> stuff. The uh, anecdotally, 
Mm. Anecdotally, there have been interesting reports on uh, people at gyms using the body fat scanners. Yeah. And losing weight and doing all that and tracking it. Mm -hmm. And then they start deliberate cold water exposure. Mm -hmm. And they do it for a week, two, three, month, month goes by. And they go back and test their, uh, you know, also in the gym at the same time. And they go back Mm -hmm. and test their body fat percentage. And it says they've put on loads and loads of body fat in a month. And so they're like, oh my God, I don't feel like I put on 6% body fat in a month. But apparently it's the increase in brown fat adipose tissue or brown adipose tissue i mean i mean i it's it's anecdotal and i would love to see the study because i mean part of the issue with that like with this study that like there's nothing against your anecdotal is actually it's really hard to easily measure brown fat volume to know you know literally how many grams of brown fat are there it's actually really difficult to do that you have to use pet scans and things like that i can't do that in the field with the reindeer herders uh until we get like a really easy handhold way of trying to measure brown fat volume which we are working on by the way i'm i'm collaborating with an with an engineer at Notre Dame um co-opting a, an instrument they use we keep returning to cancer ben uh co-opting an instrument they use to look at breast cancer um and they're they it's some i do not understand the tech because i am not an engineer but some sort of amazing laser technology and they started it with breast cancer because that tends to be closer to the surface obviously it's in the breast um and they can like put the little scanner over over the breast and where the tumor is and actually get dimensions of the tumor size and they're using it to assess treatment efficacy like how much is it making the tumor shrink um and so we're trying to co-opt that now for brown fat to see if we can actually get some estimates of size of the brown fat area just like they do with breast cancer tumors um okay and so that's something that is hopefully on the horizon that we can you know come up with an easy way that doesn't involve a hospital to 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 measure brown adipose tissue volume i imagine your own experiments you're going to run when if you had that tool and if it Mm -hmm. was successful where you can easily measure brown fat i imagine the scope of experiments you want to run are just endless, right? I know, like people at home don't see like, you know, the greedy evil fingers I'm doing right now in front of my face. Like, (laughs) yes, yes, all the experiments. Uh, Yeah, that'll be really cool once we can actually do that non-invasively because otherwise you have to inject people with like, you know, the labeled glucose and all of that stuff to, to really get a good idea. But if we could just, you know, literally put a sensor on somebody's skin and be done, how awesome would that be? Oh, I imagine, yeah. I mean, it would clear up a lot of uh, a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. So, on that, where do you see the literature going around studying people in that extreme environment? In like cold. Where, where, in cold, yeah. Yeah. So this is the other lesson that we're now going to get back to as I'm doling Wonderful. them out bit by bit. Uh, hopefully keeping everybody interested. So we got the brown fat lesson, the really interesting metabolic rate differences between females and males, and the other one is the health aspect, which is confusing when it comes to the reindeer herders in in many ways. So 75% of the herders I worked with were either overweight or had obesity. They're big, like big, big folks. Um, And at least initially, and we're waiting to to run the numbers on the next bout of data, they look healthy. Like their glucose is good. Their cholesterol is good. With a caveat, technically, a lot of them have high cholesterol, but a lot of it seems to be driven by high HDL cholesterol, which is the good cholesterol, the healthy cholesterol. Um, But their triglycerides and LDL, which is the bad stuff, is low. Uh, And so, like, metabolically, they look 
healthy, which goes against everything we think about obesity. Uh, and the idea is, is that they may potentially have a metabolically healthy obese phenotype. Uh, an MHOP, uh, also known as fat and fit or fit and fat, uh, where you can carry this extra adipose tissue because, yeah, they have a lot of muscle mass, but they're carrying a lot of fat too. The obesity, when we look at BMI among these folks, is not driven by epic amount of muscle. It's standard. They're just big. Uh, so it goes against everything we think of uh, BMI, and we could probably do a whole show about the problems with BMI, body mass index, period. Uh, but they seem to buck that trend. And so my, my graduate student and I put together a, a commentary about, you know, why might we see this metabolically healthy obesity among a cold climate population? And there are a couple of potential reasons. One might be the interesting metabolic profile we see with them with this brown adipose tissue, increased resting metabolic rates, and the brown fat consuming glucose and fatty acids could be really helpful in maintaining a healthy metabolic profile despite a quote-unquote poor adipose profile, fat profile, if you will. The other part of that is they're very physically active. So, I mean, the reindeer herders have to work hard to live in that environment and to work in that environment. And we've seen a number of studies, uh, like big meta-analyses, looking at people with obesity and then looking at their the, the markers of their health, their metabolic metabolic health, and relating that also to their levels of physical activity. And they saw that people who have obesity but maintain a good standard level of physical activity don't seem to suffer the metabolic effects, the negative metabolic effects of having extra adipose tissue. And so there might be this like fit, fat, and cold uh, you know, phenotype that perhaps cold climate adaptations, if they are true adaptations, uh, could keep them metabolically healthy. Uh, but it could also just come down straight to physical activity, which the reindeer herders have to have high ones given their environment and their occupation. Oh, wow. That's, uh, yeah, that does completely turn the sort of consensus view of obesity on its head a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, I no. imagine that yeah. if they followed that same, uh, I guess, the same exercise for a while, they might sort of come down into the category below obesity. I imagine. I, I don't know. I mean, um, they're, they're staying like they're, they're, they're staying at that. And I mean, fat also serves a purpose in the cold. Like it is a good insulator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's good to have that extra fat um, to, to some degree. Tangled up in my cord. Uh, and there was another part I was going to add to this, but this also complicates, I would say climate change complicates this that because cold is no longer so cold, you might be losing that pressure that actually helps keep you healthy despite having extra fat. But if things are not cold as more as they used to be, um, you could be removing that environment and therefore what used to be beneficial is now gonna be detrimental. Um, and so we might be seeing this particularly with the males where their resting metabolic rates are all over the place. And if they're a male who has a lower metabolic rate than expected for a cold climate, they might end up putting on more adipose tissue and start moving into a realm of unhealthy obesity where previously healthy obesity was the standard. Hmm. That's so many, so, so many questions off the back of that, but I imagine that you have even more questions and it's what you sort of, uh, which leads me to the next question. Where are you going to sort of focus your attention yeah. uh, in the future with the studies? Yeah, so we're going to maintain all the data collection stuff that we've already talked about. So your metabolic rates and, and your brown adipose tissue and all of that stuff. 
Uh, but we're going to start digging in more now into the health aspects of it and, and doing a lot more rigorous full-on blood panels, even looking at some, some hormone levels too, to see are we actually seeing metabolically healthy obesity or are we getting a false positive with that you know, from, from the previous studies? Um, and I, I think very pointedly trying to understand the ways in which climate change is likely negatively impacting the health among the reindeer herders. Uh, as you know, it's going to be a bit of a canary in a coal mine, if you will, because the Arctic is experiencing climate change at a faster pace than a lot of other places on the globe. And so if this is what we're seeing with this population, how can we expand this out and what can we expect and what sort of proactive measures can we take uh, to try to maintain health? Because climate change is here, it's here to stay. Um, and it's likely looking like it's not going to reverse. We, we can't reverse it at this point. So what can we do to try to maintain health and well-being in the face of these new environmental challenges? And so trying to understand what's happening with this population and how climate change is negatively affecting them, that's the big direction that we're going. Mm. I mean, I guess it's a tick for an argument to some deliberate form of cold exposure. I mean, whether, exactly. whether it be wearing a lesser, uh, one less layer or you know, an mm -hmm. ice bath, who knows? Um, if I may, some quick fire questions just Absolutely. to wrap up. Um, if you could know Wave of Magic Rewind and you can know one thing, you don't have to run the test, you just get to know it with regards to humans and cold exposure or actually open it up humans at extreme temperatures mm. or extremes. What would you want to wave that wand and know? Oh my God, that's such a good question. Hmm. Wave a wand with humans to the extremes. I feel like this is just like the nerdy, like absurd thing is. It's the place. Yeah, right. I know. Like this is the place. It's like, I would love to wave a wand and see the entire concept map of all the different interacting hormones um, and metabolic processes that are ongoing and interacting all at once. That's what I want to see. Uh, because like I said, like we're just now figuring out how estrogen is affecting brown fat. Like, well, what else does estrogen do? Because it turns out it does a lot. It has nothing to do with reproduction. That's what I want to wave a wand and see. I want to see all of these interconnected relationships and pathways uh, that lead to the phenotypes that we actually observe. Fascinating. That's so boring. I know. That's like the no. It's not. Thing. I mean, I'm, I'm, biting my, I'm biting my tongue trying not to ask you about, uh, you know, what's it called? Not five alpha reductase. Uh, aromatase. Aromatase. You know, which, oh my goodness. Yeah. I know. I mean, does brown fat have aromatase in it? Which, for the listener, would Don't be no idea. Yeah. yeah so I'd aromatase turns uh, testosterone into estrogen, uh, and it's folks. in normal fat. Um, yeah. Yes. And everyone so, has it. And to so just to let people know, cholesterol is like the original molecule from which all steroid hormones are made. Cholesterol is turned into progesterone. Progesterone is then converted to testosterone, and estrogen is, or, and then testosterone is converted to estrogen. <laughs> so that's kind of like your very typical pathway. So all testosterone comes from progesterone, uh, whereas all estrogen comes from testosterone. But everything comes from cholesterol to begin with. Uh, and the fun fact, I'm leading it out here as I just show everyone my tank top. Um, <laughs> the estrogen receptor is twice as old as the testosterone receptor. And the testosterone receptor is the result of a duplication of the estrogen receptor. And it's the rough age of the estrogen receptor is 600 million to 1.2 billion years old. And so estrogen has been a physiologically active hormone well before there was ever sexual reproduction. Well, 
I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> follow it with everybody needs to respect estrogen and stop focusing on testosterone for like five minutes. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Just I give mean, it ma- five minutes. <laughs> definitely. I mean, even on that, I mean, if, if males alter their estrogen too much, you know, they can't think well, right? And their libido goes out the roof. Uh, there is non-existent, right? So it's needed in males as well. I think mm-hmm. anyone who tries to crush it with sort of uh, certain drugs is uh, mm. it's not a wise move. Um, fascinating. We did endocrinology as well. I'm pleased oh, we covered yeah. that. Very good. And one last one, or two, yeah. last, second last one. What surprised you most in studying humans? I feel like I need to stop being surprised is where I'm going to go with this, that the weird stuff that you find. Humans are so incredibly variable. And every time I'm going to go with a prediction, boop, it goes out the window because you just see something new and strange. Like the perfect example is the females having higher metabolic rates than the males. I'm like, I didn't believe it. I ran the numbers so many times because it completely bucked everything. So like the surprising thing about humans is how surprising they are. And I need to stop being shocked by it when I'm like, well, that doesn't follow that rule. line. <laughs> like a lot of our rules are so many exceptions. And I think the only time you don't see an exception is with variation. Variation is the rule with humans. Well, I think that's a that's a beautiful answer to end on. And you've so much enthusiasm that comes through, even on a, a little laptop screen here, um, <laughs> well, which is uh, infectious. So firstly, thank you so much for coming on. Really, really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, where can we find you? Where Where can people learn more? Yeah, so luckily I have a very unusual name, so I'm easy to find. Uh, I am on Twitter X or whatever it's being called as Kara Akabak. Uh, I think that's also the same for Blue Sky and Mastodon and Threads. Because my name is unusual, it's easy enough to find and Google me. And my email address at Notre Dame is C-O-C-O-B-O-C-K at N-D.edu and N-D as in Notre Dame. Perfect. Well, Kara, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Ben, for the great conversation. I really enjoyed it. 